folks, and welcome to the Modern Agile Show, episode 40. I am delighted to be interviewing my friend, uh, Elizabeth Hendrickson. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you. Great to Good have to you here. here. Yes, well, Elizabeth is, I've no, we've known each other for over 20 years, um, and she is a veteran software tester, a veteran agilist. She was a, an executive at Pivotal um, and ran their R&D. She was the, the vice president of R&D at Pivotal. She has a wealth of experience and uh, is a great person. So I'm, I'm delighted to have you on the show. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. And you are on the first you know, distributed version of this show. We normally do it here in the office. And uh, thank you for being our first uh, virtual guest. Happy, happy to do so. I'm sorry I can't be there in person, but uh, things have changed since we arranged this. They have. They certainly have. <laughs> but we are delighted to be um, focusing on our topic and maybe taking a break from all that. Sounds good. Pandemic. Infodemic is what I heard it called. There's so much information floating. It's, uh, it's nice to like maybe take a breather and, and get back to this agile stuff. Yeah, let's talk about software. <laughs> so um, you um, have been heavily involved in the software field for many years. And I, we first met, was it at a Jerry Weinberg class? It was or definitely through Jerry Weinberg. I remember having a dinner with you at some point um, when there were a whole bunch of people who were in town for two different conferences that were happening at the same time. Oh, yeah. But we definitely spent a whole lot more time together at a Jerry Weinberg class on experiential course design. Right. Yes. Experiential course design. That was a fantastic class. Learning, learning from a master practitioner. And um, yeah, I, I, I remember that fondly. Yeah. Um, and I also remember, you know, basically uh, all the work you did with the group of people involved in exploratory testing. So uh, to me, you're synonymous with that too, in, in addition to all the, that you, the other stuff you've done. So maybe we'll get to that later in the show and talk about that. Sounds good. So um, you have a, a great deal of agile experience um, in addition to all your testing, you know, levels and guru nature of that. Um, we'll talk about your book later too. So it's a really good book that you all need to know about. Um, tell me about Agile. Like what, how did you get into Agile? And, and well, yeah. You played a big role in that. Uh, so going way, way back, starting in like, I don't know, the year 2000 or something, Brian Merrick had been talking to a whole bunch of us in the general like testing community about Agile and specifically extreme programming. And I had been just like, ignoring him and extreme programming that sounds like bungee cords and no I don't need any of that um, but you know he kept at it and eventually I got curious enough to uh, start exploring and learning more about it and that's when um, I think several things happened at once you and I had met you had this class on extreme programming and you were so 
um, kind to invite me to come to that class in, I don't know, 2001, 2002. Mm -hmm. And it was my first real experience with XP. It was a fully immersive course, speaking of experiential course design, 100% uh, immersive, experience driven. And you had some amazing exercises in that class. So that was really the first time I, I truly got immersed in Agile. Oh, thanks. Yeah, that, that, I remember that too. That was in San Francisco, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah, we had a really wonderful space there. Um, it was, I think it was at the, on the second floor of a Wells Fargo building or something like that. Yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> yeah, that was fun. Um, I, I, you know, a lot of that experiential learning, I was deeply, deeply into that stuff back then, late 90s, early 2000s. I still am, but it, it you know, what we were learning with uh, Weinberg was helpful too. And, and then I was studying with Tiagi and all the people that are involved in uh, the NASAGA, the North American Simulations and Gaming Association. And I, I know you love inventing, uh, you know, your, we'll talk more about your, your simulation later. And, um, but just simulations and games are just such an awesome way to teach. Totally. I yes, should have mentioned you, you're an experienced instructor in addition to all the other things I said about you. So um very cool yeah so and then what did you do so how did you keep going with because i mean test driven development i know is something you became uh very passionate about very much so uh so um sometime after that I, it was 2003 or four somewhere in there um, I managed to uh, sort of weasel my way, is what, how I refer to it, onto um, one of Rob Mee's real projects that where mm -hmm. he was doing XP. Um, and that was where I really got to uh, see the application of everything that you had taught in your course in the real world and how it all played out. Um, uh, we were doing pairing, test-driven development, all of the XP practices on this yes. project. It was my first Pivotal Labs project. Um, and I like to say it ruined me for working any other way because, yeah. uh, you know, as we were going through this project and I was thinking, wow, how did I ever produce software before? <laughs> because um, it was just so incredibly effective. The amount of work that we were able to do as a team uh, uh, in the course of just a few months, it was, I was on the project for like two or three months. I forget. I was mm -hmm. a contractor on this project. Um, and we got so much more done uh, uh, in that sh incredibly short amount of time and with a smaller number of people than in any of my prior experience. It was absolutely phenomenal. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, that, that's, that, the, that's the, the, the necklace, if you will, of XP, where all these little practices go together. And if you put them all together and you form the necklace, you know, it's, it's a paradigm shift. It's a, it's a step yeah. level up. You are at a completely different level when you're doing all those practices together. Absolutely, it was phenomenal. And it wasn't just, it wasn't all just technical either, right? No, no, absolutely not. Um, some of my greatest insights from that, that project actually were not specifically about technical practices, but more about the way that the team engaged and also anti-patterns. So for example, I, I, there was one day when I was doing a lot of soloing because I was doing a lot of exploratory testing on that project and I was the only one doing exploratory testing. And so there was one day where I realized at the end of the day that I had been sitting um, less than six feet away from all of the rest of my team members and I hadn't spoken to anybody all day. And that was really sad, but it taught me a lot about how it is so easy to not have communication unless you're actively trying to communicate. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I mean, today we would say that was great social distancing. <laughs> maybe we would, maybe we wouldn't, because I was less than six feet away. <laughs> oh, boy, I couldn't help myself. You mentioned six feet, you know. <laughs> Either we're going to be six feet under or we're going to... Um, no, 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 no. You're fine. You're fine. So you point, your point was you felt that you weren't collaborating enough. Uh, right, exactly. And yes. so from, you know, from that day forward, I just, I made a point that if people weren't talking to me, I went out and I, I was talking with people. It was all within the same shared team space. We were all in a bullpen setup. So uh, it was, um, yeah. it, it was quite eye-opening to me how much, even in an open office and environment, you have to make an effort to communicate and collaborate with your teammates. And yes. that's one of the things that I absolutely love about the XP practices is the way that that's just sort of baked in. The mm -hmm. fact that I was soloing so much much was actually a, a smell, a process yeah. smell that yeah. should have come up at some point. And I'm sure it did. I mean, mm -hmm. at this point, this was 15 years ago. So yeah, at yeah. least. That's a good point you make. Too. I mean, one thing is people, people today talk about extreme programming and they say, uh, you know, they refer to it completely as these technical practices. Like to them, t extreme programming is basically maybe TDD and refactoring uh, and maybe CI, continuous integration, and that's it. Whereas those of us who really studied it and practiced it, understood it in a completely different way. I mean, uh, the social dynamic, as you're saying, you know, the, the process parts of it, which were substantial. Evolutionary design, to me, was something I learned with extreme programming. And, you know, it well, goes back to Kent Beck's um, make it work, make it right, make it fast. You mm -hmm. know, um, we would just, boom, create something that worked and then just add flesh to the bones. There's so much there. Um, like when you so say much. that when you say that you felt like you were operating at a completely different level of software development, that doesn't happen by accident. That requires a lot of, you know, technical and social changes. It does. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's, and it's cool too, because the, well, so the tester community, talk to me about that. How did they think about XP? Were there, there were the proponents and the, the people that just hated it or? Yeah, I mean, if we want to go way back, I, I actually, I, I have not been part of that community for a long time. So I cannot speak to the, the way that the community reacts to Agile today. I do think that, you know, from what I see, people like Lisa Crispin and Janet Gregory and um, so many people who uh, uh, are um, practicing testing in the context of Agile and doing, adding tremendous amounts of value and doing so incredibly well. So I know that there is a vibrant community and doing well. I'm just, I can't speak for that community. Uh, yes, but yes. if we go back like that 15 years, oh my word, it was, it was so contentious. Um, uh, I remember uh, in one case, a, a, a tester, uh, a prominent person in the industry looking at the tests that came out of test-driven development, looking at these little, little tests and saying, um, sort of like Crocodile Dundee, that's not a test, this is a test! Um, <laughs> Oh, and, uh, you know, I think what you said about the, the, the pearls on the necklace is so true, because uh, if you only look at, if we take TDD as an example, and you only look at it as a technical practice, and you only look at the tests that come out of TDD, mm -hmm. and you look at that through the lens of somebody who has built their entire career off of breaking software, um, they're not going to look like their tests, and yet, what we see when we look at all of the practices put together is you don't need the same kind of the same kind of test. You still need tests, and testers have incredible value, 
but it's it, you don't need that same approach to testing um, that sort of adversarial, I am going to show how your software is broken. Um, and I think that the, the fact that, the, the, as you said, the paradigm was changing, I think that that is one of the reasons why there was so much animosity. It was a, it was a battle for a while. I, wow. I remember articles coming out about how XP is, is irresponsible. And frankly, it's the only way I know how to build really good, reliable, resilient software. But yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's that's uh, that that was an interesting time. I remember living through that too, and I, I and I also remember that, you know, um, what you ended up calling you and a group of people called exploratory testing was not really defined in extreme programming, but it was needed. No, it really was needed. I mean, you know, it was like so. Of course, XP wasn't nothing's perfect. You know, you can always improve, and to me, that was a substantial improvement was adding exploratory testing. Could you just say for the audience, like, what is exploratory testing? Sure. Uh, exploratory testing is uh, a, an approach uh, of, of getting information about the system under test by uh, doing little micro experiments where each experiment uh, guides you to the next experiment. Your observations as a result of doing each little experiment suggest the next thing to explore. Hmm. Okay. And it's, it's manually done. It's not, let's, you don't write code or, or can you? No, that's also? not true. I, okay. I mean, basically, it's it, anything that helps you get information about the system under test. Got it. Okay. Yes. So you could, yeah, fine. So however you're going to learn. It's, it's a learning, it sounds like a learning practice. It's totally a learning practice. Mm -hmm. Very cool. And, and yeah, so my experience was we would sometimes train whole teams in extreme programming and they would be really proud of the fact they were like, you know, we have zero bugs or are very close to zero. But then if they got a tester in to start doing exploratory testing, they're like, actually, you do have a few bugs that you aren't aware of. And, you know, the corner cases and the, the things that they hadn't thought about. So our practice matured with, with exploratory testing when we brought that into the teams and started to like, okay, let's, let's see what we can learn about what we did catch through our suite of automated TDD tests. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. The whole shift as well from the testers trying to break the software and that whole, that mindset. We worked with a lot of developer uh, testers who started to come upstream and join the team, be part of the team. Um, and then even beginnings of um, 2003 or so, we started, um, well, this started happening even in 2000. I was noticing we would TDD everything, but bugs mm -hmm. were slipping through. Mm-hmm. And it made me start to think, why don't we have tests at the story level? Mm -hmm. And I started calling them story tests in 2000. And then I eventually called it story test driven development and said, why don't we have a TDD like process at the story level? Um, that's a long old story. Um, I mean, eventually people started calling it BDD, behavior driven development. Um, but what are your thoughts about all that today? Oh, totally. Uh, when you say, what are my thoughts? I, I mean, I would say I view it all as feedback loops. Yeah. So um, let's say I'm a product manager and I am asking for a capability in the software. 
um, then absolutely I want to have a way to know that I got what I asked for and it's going to be a whole lot easier for the team if we specify up front in very concrete ways what I mean. So if I say that, you know, whether it, it, you call it story test driven development, acceptance test driven development, view it as outside in BDD all the way down, however you view that, I think that, that stipulating up front in fairly concrete terms with examples, what you're looking for is definitely a, a, a really good practice. Whether yes. or not you automate those, that's a different question. Yes. And you, you might automate them as truly, genuinely end-to-end -end tests. The challenge there is they end up being fragile. Um, and so you need to have a really, really good reason to do that. You may automate them just below the covers and uh, look to other ways of catching circumstances where um, your GUI ends up busted. But uh, the practice, though, of defining up front what you mean, begin with the end in mind, oh, so critical. Yeah, it's, it's so nice to hear you speak, uh, say these things and uh, just talk to you about this stuff. It's like, you know, just a kindred spirit. I mean, we, we, it's like we've all, we've all experienced the fragility of, a, of an acceptance test. And, and you come to point, come point where you realize, wait a minute, wait a minute. I don't want a lot of these things because they do slow me down. Right, right totally. Yeah. I want just enough. Like just I just, enough. I want a tiny, tiny amount. I, I never want to fool myself into believing that the software works when actually I'm not even looking to see whether or not it works. Right. Like, yeah. And so in modern agile, which I know you're not too familiar with, but we have this principle, we call it make safety a prerequisite. And I think to some extent you're talking about how much safety do we need, right? Mm -hmm. Like what's, and what, what's too much safety, right? There's a story from, uh, I think the, 1500s of this, uh, the, the English were fighting the French, and the French at that point had this armor that had reached its zenith, it's, it's the greatest thickness of all. They were trying to protect themselves, so the, the armor got thicker and thicker and thicker, to the point where if a French soldier fell off their horse with this armor, they couldn't get back up. Oh, no. And so basically... How ironic. <laughs> And then the, you know, the English would make quick work of them because they were lightly clad and they had their spears. And, but the point being, sometimes what we think of as safety can go too far and hurt us. And so I think of, of too many automated tests, too many fragile tests, things like that. Yeah. Yeah, the tremendous irony is the cycle that ends up happening is when the tests get fragile, then when they turn red, people stop paying attention to the red. And so it ends up being actually even less safe than if you had nothing, because then it's sort of like the four-way stop thing, where if there's a four-way uncontrolled intersection, people know they have to slow down. Yes. Um, yes. But if it's a four-way stop, then it, it may actually be less safe. I seem to remember there was a paper done about that somewhere. Right, right. Please don't that's, ask me for a citation. I don't have <laughs> no, it. No, that's fine. Yeah, they, we have uh, some of those uh, circles in uh, in Berkeley, the um, you know sort of traffic circles where there's you know, everyone has to go. It's very European. We have some, and they they do function fine. Yeah, no lights required. It's a lot cheaper too. Um, yeah, so that's cool. Uh, the that's exactly my experience that you want to have. So, so I, we love Brian Merrick's uh, sticker, you know, uh, you know, uh, an example would be handy about now. Um, oh, yeah. Remember oh, that? I, oh, I totally remember that. I had it on my laptop for the longest time, and it's been years. So now I'm going to see if he's still got some in the stock. Uh, that would be nice. That was yes. a great, it was a great uh, sticker back then because it was just so perfect. It's like, yeah, just, hey, what's an example of using this user story? What's yeah. real concrete, you know, data. And, and no, we don't have to automate it, but we need to know what that is. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you wrote a book called Explore It. I did. Can you say more about that? Sure. Uh, it's been out for quite a long time now. It's uh, from Pragmatic Bookshelf, and it's a book about the practice of exploratory testing, and it walks through. Um, it's sort of like a combination of a bunch of test design techniques for thinking about uh, how to test software, um, but framed in the context of assuming that you're running little itty bitty teeny tiny experiments, letting one experiment guide you to the next. Mm. Um, And then some suggestions on how to organize your thinking about that uh, with charters. Wow, that's really nice. Yeah, I'm sorry, I haven't read it yet. um, But I, 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 um, it sounds like, so you're teaching me something about exploratory testing today. First of all, I mean, I, I, I didn't think of it exactly the way you're describing it, especially how you're talking about that it can be automated too. Like I always thought it was all manual, but you're saying it's okay if you write some automated tests to learn from and, and carry on to the next test. So interesting. Yeah, um, sounds like a great book. Um, yeah, I, I'd like to see more people learning exploratory testing because I just see that the people who are on the journey to becoming really great uh, agile developers or extreme programmers, um, I find they, they miss this exploratory testing piece, and then a lot of bugs do slip through. So, or not, when I say a lot, I just mean, you know, too many in, in our book, which is small. Um, yeah, interesting. Now, you're the VP of R&D at Pivotal, which is an, an amazing um, role, I'm sure, in a, in a great innovative company like that. You also, I think you got to be on the, um, the floor of the stock exchange, Oh, yeah, it was wild. I didn't know it was on my bucket list until I, so I was one of two VPs of R&D at Pivotal. I was responsible for our data products, and uh, we were about to go public, and the discussion at the e-staff level was, um, is it just going to be Rob, me, and maybe, you know, like our CFO, and uh, Cynthia, and, and, you know, small number up there, or are we going to have the the whole e-staff, and there were like 10 or so of us on the e-staff, um, and I suddenly realized that I really wanted to do that, and I hadn't <laughs> even known it was on my bucket list. Uh-huh. Um, but yes, I got to stand on the platform while Rob Me rang the bell when we went public. It was it was kind of amazing. It was very, surreal. Very, very nice. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting experience. Yeah, it's funny when you don't know something's on your bucket list until you do it. <laughs> it was really cool. So R&D, um, how did Agile or XP influence your, your role at what you, you know, at R&D, you know? Yeah. Well, so Pivotal, um, a lot of people know Pivotal as Pivotal Labs, um, because that's where the name came from. But Pivotal, mm-hmm. the, the company um, that was just recently acquired by VMware, mm-hmm. uh, it, it was, uh, I, uh, Pivotal Labs is where the name came from. It was a spin out from VMware and EMC originally. Uh, EMC was subsequently acquired by Dell. Uh, and it, it had a collection of products in the portfolio that uh, uh, made sense all together, that, that um, brought together the, the sort of full life cycle of, of uh, modern application development. And so I, I, when we look at Agile and Pivotal, um, Pivotal Labs had a very, very strong uh, Agile practice known for its XP-based uh, uh, process. 
Um, however, the Pivotal Labs was about, I think, 200 people. And when we spun out, um, Pivotal, the company, was about 1,200 people. So it was not all agile. And one of the things that I, I did get to be involved in was uh, helping ensure that all of our product development practices were aligned with the principles of agile. Um, because we were doing, uh, you know, you're developing databases, you're developing uh, Cloud Foundry. Uh, uh, you, it, it's, it's not, the way that you develop it is not going to necessarily look identical to developing, um, say, a web application, but that doesn't mean that the practices don't apply. It just means that the way that they look is slightly different um, than, than the way that you might go about doing a Greenfield microservices web app. Mm-hmm. I see. So you were taking the agile principles and applying them to all sorts of different contexts. Exactly. Yeah. And that's it was nice. Fun. Yeah. Yeah. That's to me, that's when you've really gotten a sense for what agile is, you know, uh, can you say, what does it mean to you? What is agile to you? Well, I, you know, I went and in, in preparation for this, I, I went and looked up because I think it was 2010. So it was before I joined Pivotal, but after I had taken your class and been involved in the Agile community for a while, that I wrote a blog post on my blog at testobsessed.com, um, the Agile Acid Test. And uh, so the way I view Agile is it's uh, delivering a continuous stream of value, uh, which I believe is part of your modern Agile principles yes. um, at a sustainable pace while mm -hmm. adapting to the changing needs of the business. Yeah. It's pretty hard to argue with that, right? That's, like, it's that's pretty darn hard to argue with that. Right. It's a distillation of the principles behind the Agile Manifesto. Mm -hmm. um, and when we look at extreme programming, uh, and you talked about the necklace of practices, yes. it absolutely enables delivering a continuous stream of value at a sustainable pace while adopt, uh, adapting to the changing needs of the business. Mm -hmm. When we look at a very large, complicated thing like a, oh, say, distributed database, um, the uh, getting to that point of being able to deliver a continuous a stream of value, uh, that, that was what we were on a journey to do. Um, and we, we did it as, as an overall team. We got from a point where we were unable to, uh, for one of our products, we were really unable to, to uh, uh, take things, uh, to ship it. So GA, general availability, uh, get the product to GA. Um, I think that the team had been GAing like every 18 months. Oh, we gosh. got it to the point where we could GA every month. Oh, nice, nice. It, I yes. mean, it wasn't like we did a major release every single month because, frankly, when you're dealing with a database, your customers are uh, largely um, IT shops who uh, don't have the bandwidth to upgrade to a major new major release that often. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but we, we were absolutely able to GA every month with things that we could say, stand behind and say, yes, we are confident that you can run this patch release in production or this minor release in production. Mm -hmm. um, so it was quite a transformation. And That's awesome. Yeah, it was. And, and the, the knock-on effects then of customers getting to the point where they actually trusted our software more. So you think if you're changing more quickly that you end up increasing your risk. We were, we were seeing that in, in the real world, the risk was decreasing because uh, the, our software was that much more stable and our customers were able to take less time to qualify new releases than they had before. Wonderful, wonderful. Yeah. So this brings me to the definition I use for Agile, which is from the dictionary, and it's an adjective. So there's two of them that I like. One of them it sounds closer to what you're talking about, which is it's quick, resourceful, and adaptable. Okay. 
That's what it means. That's a definition of the adjective agile. And it sounds like that's exactly what you were with, with the database work in Cloud Foundry. It was, it was, I guess you didn't use the word quick, but you're delivering value continuously. Mm -hmm. you're, so that is a quickness to that. It's constantly mm -hmm. going out and it's very adaptable, as you said, right? You're adapting to the changing conditions um, and being resourceful to do that. Yep. So that's um, the other one that is my personal favorite is quick, easy grace. So marked mm. by an ability to move with quick, easy grace. So to me, that, that comes into your sustainable pace part. That, uh, you know, it's not going to be graceful if you're always sprinting, if you're always going full out. Um, but the quick, easy grace is just, you know, it starts to become easier because you're, you know, you're not having all these problems all the time. There's not too many moving parts. You've simplified. Um, so yeah, think about that. It, it's, it's, it's very similar to what you're talking about. Um, I think anyone that's like yourself and been involved in this agile, uh, world for so long, applying agile to your work has gone beyond the point of just looking at it as sprints and standups and like estimation techniques, which is a very, very naive and early stage of maybe learning agile. I don't even believe that newbies should start that way anymore, but um, to me, you're talking about a principle-driven Agile, that the principles drive your implementation. Yes, absolutely. That's so cool. Yeah. And that takes it beyond XP. It takes it to now you're principle-driven. You can apply this to anything. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. Um, so you have, um, I think, retired from Pivotal. Uh, they got acquired and... Retired might not quite be the right word, but I am at the moment, I'm on a hiatus and it turns out Pivotal got acquired at the end of December and I was planning to take some time off before my next thing. I had no idea that the universe is going to schedule a general global pandemic. <laughs> the timing so is impeccable, Elizabeth. <laughs> So I'm taking some time. I've been exploring virtual reality, uh, uh, learning Python, which I just saw came out as one of the activities to do during the global act, uh, pandemic on the Gartner pandemic hype cycle. Oh. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's somewhere uh, uh, on, on peak expectations uh, and the, the hype cycle. Anyway. Um, we have being, some free, we have some e-learning e in Python. I can, I can give you a free copy if you like. Oh, that would be awesome. Yes, I'm, 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 I'm leveling up my Python skills. It was, it, I mean, I, I don't know how many programming languages I speak at this point or I'm have sure spoken. And so doing basic control of flow is no problem. And mm -hmm. finding answers to simple things like what is the syntax for iterating over a list? Super simple. That was easy. <laughs> Discovering the way that uh, default arguments get mutated on subsequent calls bit me in the butt really hard recently. And so I like, I feel like with each thing that I'm, I'm discovering that is surprising about the language or, or um, is idiomatic about the language, I'm like leveling up and fighting the boss monsters as I go. So mm -hmm. I don't know what level I'm on now. Anyway. I was, but you're not putting in curly braces. That's for sure. No, no, no. <laughs> no. The syntax is the easy part. It's the, yeah. 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 Anyway. I, it's a nice language. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, VR. Yeah, VR is, is so amazing. I mean, I, I bought one of those, um, what is it, the, uh, you know, one of the math, the thing, the, one of the early Oculus beta, Quest, beta, I got the Rift. beta, I had got an early beta of the Oculus Rift. Oh, nice. So we, we've played with that for years in my, my house, and 
I've had to I've had to hold kids from falling over because they're so excited about it and it's yeah that's fun the, the tech has come such an incredibly long way. I, I started getting into it last fall uh, and I was absolutely floored how far the tech has come and became insanely uh, obsessed with figuring out like, okay, how do you actually create content for this? Like not, not because I necessarily think that that's gonna be my next chapter is, is personally creating content, but I just wanted to understand, like you're now yeah. developing for not a flat screen, but for two screens. And if you're editing video, then it changes how you think about editing video. Um, hmm. That's so cool. So yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah, yeah it's yeah. probably going to have a rich future. I mean, it's it's early days, but you know, I mean, wow, to go experience something that maybe you can't fly there, but you could put your you know Oculus on and then go experience it. Yeah, that's, yep. Uh, that's really neat. Well, that's that's awesome. That's awesome timing and awesome, uh, you know, things you're learning. So that that's really great. Um, well, it's been a pleasure speaking to you, Elizabeth, and uh, great catching up. It's been a while, and uh, you know, we we live close enough to each other. Hopefully, when this pandemic is over, we can get a cup of coffee or something. And I would love that. See each other in person, and um, yeah, let's stay in touch. It's uh, it's just been been great having you on the show. It's such a kindred spirit, um, and uh, thanks for sharing your your knowledge and insights. Thank you so much. It was so good to see you. You too. And um, if you enjoyed the show, please um, subscribe and share it with friends. Let them know what we're talking about here. And thanks for watching. <laughs>